This podcast is sponsored by GoGo, the leader in in-flight connectivity and wireless entertainment. Our superior technologies, best-in-class service, and global reach help planes fly smarter. Our partners perform better, and their passengers travel happier. Learn more at gogoair.com forward slash airline. Let's consider for a moment just how ferociously competitive the airline industry is. Imagine for a moment that your fairy godmother was going to give you an airline. Of course, she sets out to give you the perfect carrier, and she starts making promises. It's going to have an airline pedigree as good as any in the world. It's going to sit among one of civilization's great established economies. It's going to have not one, but two major hubs with huge opportunities connecting its already giant home economy with the biggest economy in the world. And you're going to receive this airline at a time when air traffic is growing the world over and oil prices are delightfully low. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, sounds real good. Until that is, she hands you the keys to the headquarters of Air France KLM Group. And if you know a lot about the airline industry, you're probably feeling a little disappointed right now and maybe wondering whether a bottle of aspirin comes with this so-called gift. Because even with so many things going for it, competition and labor relations have kept Air France KLM from grabbing the brass ring. Now, the airline group did earn a profit in 2015, but it's a tenuous one, just 3% operating margin. That's worrisome in a year with such low fuel prices. What's even worse, that was the airline group's best year since 2007. I'm Jason Cottrell, vice president of Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, managing partner of Airline Weekly. We're going to talk about Air France KLM's host of troubles and possible signs of hope. We're also going to discuss how Air Canada is catching WestJet, how COPA is managing amid the South American crisis, and Virgin America's good but not great quarter. It's all coming up on the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. We're talking about Air France KLM. This is an airline group that has basically treaded water since 2007. That's a long time. They pretty much missed out on the boom years of 2015 and 2010, and the reasons for their struggles are many. Paris has seen terrorist attacks. They're feeling pressure on short-haul routes. Air France especially has faced chronic labor concerns. And overall, Europe is just a really competitive place. Let's start with their labor issues, which gets most of the headlines. Seth, how much is that the problem? Oh, it's a big part of the problem, especially on the Air France side of the company. KLM, over the past few years, got a lot of painful concessions out of its workers. Kind of assumed that the same thing was going to happen on the Air France KLM side, or on the Air France side, rather. And uh, by and large, it hasn't, You know, not, not to the degree that the company felt it needed. Uh, so you know, you've got talks with pilots set to restart again soon here. But generally speaking, you know, the labor issues, it's not just a cost issue per se. You know, we're not just talking about pay rates and benefits and all that. It really kind of hamstrings the company's ability to do strategically what it wants to do. Uh, you know, for example, it wanted to take its uh, Transavia low-cost unit and, and really spread it around Europe, set, uh, set up units in, in other parts uh, of the continent. And it couldn't do that, you know, because uh, it couldn't get the right agreements from uh, from its, its pilots to do that. Now, set aside for a minute how advisable that would have been. You know, we, we know setting up lo- low-cost units uh, within 
legacy airline groups is never an easy thing. But you know, the point there is that the airline couldn't do what it wanted to do in other realms, too. Uh, you know, it, it just hasn't always been able to do the things that it wanted to do. So it, it's the the inflexibility of its workforce, in addition to you know just the fact that it is a rather expensive workforce that makes things difficult. Another thing, Jason, uh, you know, it's funny. You asked me something last week that I didn't have a great answer for at the moment. And it's funny because this is the answer. You asked me, we were talking about Norwegian and how it's growing so quickly, but you know, never, never really seems to translate that growth into uh, you know, growing margins, growing profitability. And you asked me, you know, has there ever been an airline that managed to grow its way out of trouble? And it's funny because if there ever really was an answer in the world, the answer to that at one point was, of all things, Air France KLM. Uh, you know, this is a company that is, of course, Air France and KLM merged a little more than a decade ago now, uh, back in 2004. And, you know, at the time they had to promise for political and, and labor uh, issue uh, reasons not to not to get rid of jobs. And, you know, that seemed like, well, gosh, you know, you're merging. Wouldn't you want to have that flexibility to get rid of to, to eliminate some redundant positions? The way they made it work. And don't forget, that was a very, very successful merger early on. The way they made it work was precisely through growth. You know, they didn't really need to get rid of any jobs because at the beginning anyway, they were growing very rapidly. So they ended up needing all the people. In fact, hiring some new people at the bottom end of the wage scale. And of course, you know, growth equals scale equals more junior employees on average, which even with a high cost workforce does bring down average labor costs when you're adding some of those younger employees to the mix. So there you go. Bring it all full circle from Norwegian last week to Air France this week. Air France was one airline that did for a time manage to grow itself out of trouble. Alas, here we are now and it's it's not growing. It, it doesn't really see any profitable opportunities for growth. And so that fact alone, the fact that it's not growing, the fact that it, you know by extension its workforce is gaining an average seniority, that too pushes up labor rates, not just the not just what you pay, uh, you know, a pilot or a flight attendant or, or or somebody with X number of years per se. But the fact is that the X now is higher each year. If the airline doesn't grow. And setting aside labor for a moment, uh, they're seeing a lot of competition from Ryanair, EasyJet. Even Norwegian is flying more and more to Paris. What's the short haul picture look like? Oh, it's still brutal. Uh, you know, yes, Ryanair and EasyJet, especially in Norwegian as well. Uh, Paris now long haul for Norwegian as as well as uh, short haul routes from from Orly uh, for them, uh, you, you know, you know Voiling uh, is 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 there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a lot of low cost competition. Uh, and when we say low cost, we're talking about airlines that have costs. You know, in some cases, 30, 40 percent below what Air France has. And, and on short haul, you're just not going to make it up on on yields now. They got out of mostly out of the the provincial you know base business where they were flying these uh, these point to point routes at one point doing flying a lot of them, which you know weren't even feeding its long haul network from places like Toulouse you know elsewhere in in, in France and, and so that was just just a real disaster because uh, you, you know it wasn't even like these routes were contributing to to the network I, I mean it was quite simply if EasyJet had far lower costs and if the fares weren't all that much higher in Air France you know. Air France was going to get killed. Uh, so at least, you know, more now than a couple of years ago, they are focusing again on feeding the, the very powerful long haul network. But yeah, short haul, at least per se, on a sort of a fully allocated basis is is long going to be a, a very difficult thing for them. OK, speaking of long haul, we had a big write up on Air France KLM in this week's issue. And one thing we didn't really talk about is competition from the Gulf carriers. 
they continue to grow, and we know this is a big deal for Lufthansa. We also know it's not such a big deal for British Airways. How big of a deal is it for Air France KLM? Yeah, well, you know, just as they are uh, sort of geographically positioned in between the two that you just mentioned, probably somewhere in between also uh, when, when it comes to, to the uh, the. Gulf carrier threat. Now, you know, one caveat, by the way, I mean, we have to remember when 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 IAG, you know, the parent of, of British Airways, Iberia and, and of whaling says that, you know, they're kind of sanguine about about the whole Gulf carrier threat. We do have to remember just kind of a little asterisk that they are 10 percent owned by Qatar Airways. So, you know, their views could be perhaps influenced to some degree by by the fact that you know they're owned partly by one of those airlines and not only uh by strategic considerations, but legitimately, look, I mean, yeah, they are more of a transatlantic facing airline. By extension, the Gulf carriers, for the moment anyway, don't compete all that much uh, just across the Atlantic. And so they are going to be less concerned. Uh, Lufthansa competes for a lot of the same traffic flows to India and so forth. And Air France, just kind of when you look at their exposure, somewhere in between the two. When you listen to them speak, uh, speak less about the Gulf carriers than, uh, than, than IAG does. But, you know, clearly, there's a lot that they can't do as well as they would like to do it because of the existence of, of, of the Gulf carriers. And so they're watching closely what's going on in the Gulf right now because it's you know, life is not getting easier for those carriers themselves. But the bottom line is they consider or they continue rather uh, growing very rapidly, even if not profitably. And you know, in the end, it's capacity. It's in the marketplace and a lot of key uh, markets between Europe and uh, yeah, India, Southeast Asia, Australia and so forth. And with, with significant impact, certainly. On, on Air France KLM. Okay, we like to peddle hope on this podcast, so let's look at reasons for hope. Let me throw out a few. The airline group has reduced its debt. We saw in the fourth quarter, the transatlantic market is holding up. They have a terrific asset in their JV with Delta. And we mentioned in the issue that Air France KLM is pretty good at dynamically managing its network. What do you think is the most compelling reason for hope? Yeah, cer- certainly all of those are hopeful. Labor uh, concessions can't solve everything, but but if they can me- manage to get uh, you know something meaningful, just because their costs are so high, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, that that would be uh, very helpful. Yeah, it, it's it's really hard to say that one of those things that you mentioned is all that much uh, more compelling than the other uh, than the others. It, you know, it, I mean, look, if anything, what we talked about just a minute ago with the Gulf carriers. If at some point they come under pressure because their their owners, you know, own finances dictate that that things have to slow down, I, I think that would certainly be a, a reason for hope. Now, there, there's no sign of that anytime soon. But just in the long term, you know, if they're feeling less brazen, if they're feeling, uh, you know, less interested in trying their hand in the transatlantic market, uh, you know, more of, uh, for example, whatever it's is doing between Milan and New York JFK, Fifth Freedom Flying. That would be good news for for Air France KLM, uh, and, and yeah, certainly just that, that that joint venture as you mentioned with with Delta uh, and Alitalia is. I mean, that's really the gold standard when it comes to uh, to European joint ventures. It's very well developed. It's it's by all accounts and appearances very profitable, uh, and and there's uh, you know no reason to think that it's going to become any any less powerful going forward. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's just sort of hoping that all those things taken together, while not one of them, uh, you know, would necessarily fix the company, that all of them together help with Air France KLM get over the hump. Because uh, you're certainly correct what you said before that that it's you know even a rather good year like 2015, not all that great. Uh, you know, one other thing, uh, you mentioned the terrorist attacks. Look, I mean, the fact that that uh, you know is is each month farther and further in the past that did 
help spoil a year that otherwise was a relatively good year. Uh, you know, things got bad there for a while in, in November and December. Uh, bookings from uh, not only far abroad, but even within Europe, you know, even Europeans uh, stopped visiting Paris in the same numbers. And so, so that too is source of hope that just, of course, you know, hopefully there's nothing like that again, as memories of that fade just a bit and people feel confident about returning to Paris uh, on vacation, that would also be helpful for an airline that suffered because of the attacks more than any other. Now, last week, we heard the CEO say something that echoed through the halls of Airline Weekly. He said that low-cost long-haul was looking, quote, more and more convincing, unquote. What do you make of that? Spoiler alert, Seth is a skeptic. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it uh, you know, we mentioned that, that Air France has gotten involved in the, in the short-haul low-cost game with, with Transavia. Uh, but they've stayed away from low-cost long-haul, so, so so that distinguishes them from Lufthansa, which uh, you know is very bullish on that with with uh, you know Eurowings. Yeah, I mean, look, we're we're talking about a model that still uh, you know by and large has never really succeeded around the world. You know, some limited examples notwithstanding. Uh, you know, some examples right now driven by cheap fuel of, of airlines that are managing relatively well, notwithstanding either. Gosh. It, you know, we we don't know if he was trying to to you know, telegraph a, a willingness to try it, but uh, he certainly sounded less skeptical than he had been in the past. <laughs> you, you know, the thing about low cost long haul is that well, look, I mentioned Lufthansa, so they're doing Euro Wings, you know, the separately branded unit, but they're also doing this other experiment where they just have lower paid crews. They got some labor concessions where they're flying to you know a place like Tampa, you know, where they said, look, we, this would not otherwise be viable with lower paid crews, and you. You don't need a low-cost unit and a separate brand to lower your costs. I mean, there are things you can do. You can just densify your cabins, and your unit costs go down. You know, you get labor uh, labor concessions, your unit costs go down. And so, one thing that sometimes doesn't make sense is, you know, when airlines establish these low-cost units, which you know, by definition, the, the you know, the idea usually is, well, this is for people who don't care as much about amenities, uh, you know, who just want the lowest cost, and then they go out and spend all this money. You know, branding these units, you know, branding them Scoot, um, you know, or Rouge or what have you. You know, so so if Air France can just lower its unit cost somehow, you know, perhaps by doing it in a way like Lufthansa did it with the one part of the company where it's just yeah, just just higher density aircraft flown by lower paid crews. Well, you know, that that's almost always a win as long as you're flying market that can support it. Uh, you know, and that's the other key. Obviously, uh, it, it's it's very possible to get into a situation where, yeah, your your costs have dropped, but your revenues have dropped even more, and that's often why low cost long haul doesn't work. So, you know, we'd have to hear more about what he's thinking. But again, it's it's uh, we're talking about something that, yes, seems to be less bad for the moment than it traditionally has been, uh, largely because of of cheap fuel cost. But uh, you know, we're a long way from 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 declaring that that you know low cost long haul is is uh, is is suddenly a a a good model where you know, after all these decades of, of it not really working. Okay, let's wrap up the Air France KLM portion of the show <laughs> with dun, 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 this week's existential question. Seth, who'd you rather be, Air France KLM with all its problems or Korean Air, who has a more singular problem that is, unfortunately, one that's literally the size of China? Yeah, gosh, good, good, good question. I might hedge here and, and, and say, well, if anything, Korean Air has probably more opportunities. Look, it can go, it can go do a JV with with Delta, which would be very very helpful, you know, by all 
appearances. That's something that, you know, Delta has, has wanted and Korean Air has, has shied away from, you know, for, for all the challenges that exist um, and, and for all the things that are maybe just kind of worse in the world for Korean Air right now than they were a few years ago, you know, they would almost certainly be better off with a JV than without one. Uh, yeah, especially with an airline like like Delta, that's that's just really good at that game. But uh, but on the other hand, you know, there's some structural things that are just different now. Uh, you mentioned China. You know, all this, all these new nonstop routes from China to uh, North America, especially that overfly Seoul. Uh, you know, that's just. Those are just opportunities that have gone away from from Korean. You know, those are passengers that uh, you know that that often you know would have connected in Seoul, who now just don't have to do so anymore. And so, uh, you know, that along with if China's economy is slowing, so if you have more service, more capacity, more nonstop capacity, which people are always going to prefer, and on the other hand, perhaps less demand, which hasn't. We haven't seen that manifest yet. You know, I mean, the demand from China is still, for the moment, rather strong. But, but you know, is that going to hold up? You know, air, for some reason, air travel demand holding up in the face of other things slowing down in China. I don't know. We'll see. But if it doesn't, uh, then Korean Air could 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 be in for some challenges that could uh, could really linger. You know, challenges that, on the other hand, might force it to do do some things that it didn't want to do, such as you know, such as the the JV and just you know, just, just kind of partnerships more broadly for an airline that uh, you know has, has been a longtime Sky Team member and certainly has some key partnerships, but but more of an arm's length relationship in general with other airlines. Uh, you know, Air France KLM. It's hard to think of anything like that out there. I mean, this is an airline that's certainly taken advantage taken advantage of all its opportunities in terms of partnerships and and so forth. But uh, but on the other hand, that doesn't, um, you know, face a, a very sudden uh, shift in its world in, in the same way that a slowing Chinese economy and all of these new uh, nonstop flights from China to North America have impacted uh, Korean Air. So Korean Air, probably the, the higher risk, higher reward airline, if anything, which I know doesn't really answer your question. So. You'd rather be <laughs> Air France KLM? Did I get that? Uh, no, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be... Uh, rather not I'd rather be American, questions. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get out of that mess and turn to Copa Airlines, uh, our perennial profit champion from Panama. Did I pop my peas there? The airline had a tough 2015, not really surprising given South America's troubles. Copa's Q4 revenues dropped a staggering 19% year over year. Their operating margin was just 7%, down from 18% the year before. And management says Copa can maintain at least solid profits during this downturn. What do you think? Can they? Yeah, well, I, I mean, look, they're still putting up margins that, that are good compared to a lot of what's out there. But, um, yeah, you're talking about, I mean, they've, they've, they've tried to get their hands around a situation where, I mean, some of their market, you know, a place like Brazil, let's say, uh, you know, things have deteriorated so quickly that no matter how much you tried to trim, uh, it, it was very, very hard to get ahead of it. Um, you know, Venezuela uh, is, is another one. It was a very important market for them at one point. Uh, you know, it, it just became very hard to, to get ahead of that. Yeah, they're, they're slowing their growth a lot, which is, which is, you know, rather clearly what they need to do. I mean, for a long time, the story was, wow, they're growing really quickly, but apparently demand is keeping up with that growth. And, you know, airlines like to grow. I mean, we talked about earlier, uh, you know, when you're growing, you're you're just always you know, kind of hammering down your unit costs and the rest of it. And actually, with cheap fuel costs right now, for a lot of airlines around the world, growth actually becomes more desirable again. You know, I mean, in the U.S. especially, it's a place where 
Uh, you see airlines kind of ramping it up to some degree. Um, and, and gosh, when you grow, um, yes, it puts downward pressure on your unit revenues. But when you grow and when fuel is cheap, so you become more of a fixed cost business again, just really beneficial impact on your on your unit cost. But when you're COPA right now, you, you just unfortunately have to miss out on that, um, all the cost benefits, because the, the demand's just not there. And, and so, yeah, I mean, look, they will always... Um, they will always be a leader in in their region and 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 you know one of the more successful airlines in the world. But you know we're, we're just at a moment of time now where yeah they they have to get ahead of the uh, deteriorating demand. Um, but when you see how how dramatically they're slowing the growth right now, and they by the way have done things like uh, you know lease out aircraft to to United Airlines, which remains a, a very close partner of theirs. Yeah, they clearly take it seriously. I'm sure they will manage to uh, to get the supply and demand balance. Uh, you know, back back more in their favor, but uh, you know, hard to go through what they've what they've done. You know, for a while they seem to really be defying gravity, and and uh, you know, in the end, it, it caught up with them. Air Canada has a weak home currency right now, but the airline seems to be weathering it pretty well. Its fourth quarter net profit was a record, and its 2015 operating margin was a healthy 11%. For comparison's sake, WestJet's 2015 operating margin was 14%. But the story here is that Air Canada has closed the gap to just 3%. It was 6% in 2014. We mentioned in the issue how Air Canada is focusing on minimizing unit costs. How is that helping them? Uh, tremendously. Um, yeah, interesting. Here you have a legacy airline that is really, really, you know, although obviously revenue focused, still really optimizing for, for hammering down its unit cost. They have densified their aircraft to an extent that, oh, gosh, I, 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 my guess without trying to run all the numbers is that they have densified more than any other airline in the world i mean just just uh what they've done with their uh you know triple seven uh that's 300 er's um i think they put something like a you know 100 extra seats on the planes or something like that and so you know gosh that that has really beneficial impact obviously on on your unit cost uh again i mean we keep saying it in a different context here yes it, it it has a a negative impact on your unit revenues but for them uh especially in in a weaker economic environment now, their timing seems to be uh, seems to have been really good because the revenue opportunities aren't the same, uh, you know, in a lot of their markets as they once were. So playing the cost game has really worked out for them. Now remember, you know, they have Rouge, which is that low cost long haul unit. You know, also does the low cost sort of short to mid haul, you know, flying down to the Caribbean and so forth. But they but you know what I was talking about before the densification, I'm talking about mainline Air Canada. So kind of like what I said earlier about, you know, do you need to start a low cost unit or can you just make your airline lower cost through density, which anybody can do, and you don't need, you know, labor concessions and the rest of it to just densify your, your aircraft. And so uh, you know, hard to say which of the two has had the bigger beneficial impact, the actual low cost unit or just, you know, just making uh mainline uh, a, a lower cost uh, operator. But yeah, clearly it, 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 it's worked well. Um, and, and like I said, if anything, their timing probably turned out to be better than even they expected. I mean, these, these were decisions that they mostly made before the world changed and before fuel got cheap and, and, and uh, you know, the Canadian economy and, and currency got worse. But, uh, you know, the, they might have made sense anyway, the densification and all that and just kind of the, the, the focus on unit costs, but uh, ended up uh, working out better than, than they probably anticipated. Moving on to our last airline of the day, Virgin America. 
The San Francisco-based carrier reported a nice 14% operating margin. Not bad at all, but still near the low end among the U.S. carriers. Virgin is having some severe trouble in Dallas. Do you think Dallas gives them an asterisk on their lower earnings? You mean like an excuse? Yeah, like a pass. Uh, it's a nice way of saying excuse. Well, but I mean, that was their decision to, to build up Dallas. Right. Consider Dallas a sort of a one-off event. You know, does it? It's it's isolated. It's not germane to their business model. Well, yeah, but you know, it, it's. Uh, I looked at Do scheduled data earlier, and it's it's about six percent of their ASMs. You know, so it's significant, but not. You know, it doesn't explain most of what's going on at the company. But yeah, I mean, look. That was their decision to go into the lion's den there and compete against you know, American, a huge revenue producer, which itself is, is having issues in the market because of, in turn, what Southwest has done over at Dallas Love Field, you know, which is where Virgin is, has done its buildup. It, it shifted from the main airport, Dallas-Fort Worth, over to Dallas Love Field and roughly doubled its, its, its presence in the market. Uh, then you have Spirit doing its thing. And so, if anything, that's just kind of emblematic of, of Virgin America as a company that they compete in a lot of very competitive markets where they are generally not either the best revenue producer or the lowest cost producer. And so they're just kind of caught in the middle. Uh, and that's what they are as an airline, you know, even in a place like San Francisco where, uh, you know, which, which plays more to their strengths. Uh, you know, still, you've got mighty United there that'll just kind of always be better positioned uh, to chase the corporate contracts and the rest of it. And and Virgin America, gosh, you know, I, I don't think that they are the number one airline in any market that they serve anywhere in their network. You know what I'm saying? In other words, somebody else always has more frequencies, more seats and all that sort of thing. And uh, they have the nice onboard product, uh, although even they're not the same advantage that they once did all, you know, when they debuted almost a decade ago against you know bankrupt airlines flying around dirty old planes. I mean, that, you know, they went from having... Uh, probably the, the the best transcontinental product to arguably the worst now in the sense that they're the only one without out of lie flat seat and so yeah they just kind of are this middling airline that you know customers do like them but um, Dallas if anything just kind of emblematic of their problems uh, you know their inability to really distinguish themselves in a way that translates into earnings what about their refusal to offer what they call economy minus fares. Why don't they want to do that? Yeah, they're making fun of uh, of, of the uh, what what you know Delta has called basic economy and you know American and, and United have, have have signaled that that they're going to match that. And uh, that you know it seems to work very well for Delta and that's you know why American and United are, are trying to match it. Basically this this uh, planning I should say to match it. You know basically just further segmenting the cabin. Uh, you know, giving themselves a way to compete against the ultra low cost carriers in a way that doesn't dilute all their revenue. Basically, you're know, just offering a product that is is only going to appeal to very price sensitive travelers. Uh, you know, it, Virgin, I mean, you know, a brand conscious airline that doesn't like to do certain things uh, that that you know it feels would would uh, would devalue its brand. But uh, you know, it does take you out of the out of the ball game for certain passengers, either that or you do end up having to dilute uh, your your entire fare structure. Um, so, uh, so we'll see. Um, but having said that, part of it just is that look, they operate from uh, from San Francisco, from the main airport, uh, mostly where you don't have a lot of ultra low cost competition. Um, you know, there's some more of that at LAX. You know, basically in a lot of our markets, you know, the transcontinental markets, which still represent a huge percentage of their business, you don't have the ultra low cost carriers competing. So, you know, part of it just is 
that they're not exposed to as much of that as as some of the other airlines. Uh, so, you know, when, when Americans talking about you're know, going very aggressively after spirit at DFW, well, you know, there's just a lot of overlapping competition there at DFW at Chicago O'Hare and so forth. Uh, you know, just not as much of it um, in, in, in Virgin's network. So uh, one of these things where they're just, you know, perhaps they just don't have the, the, the same imperative to, uh, to do it as, as Delta uh, American and United seem to feel they have. All right. And with that, we are out of time. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge. I got to say, that economy minus line made me laugh. Yeah, it's cute. <laughs> <laughs>